In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. There is a scene in, uh, in Alice in Wonderland, uh, you may remember. Alice uh, turns to the cat and says, Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to walk from here? And uh, the cat answers, Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. Alice says, Oh, I don't much care. To which the cat responds, Well, then it doesn't matter much which way you walk. And I suppose that there is some truth in that. Um, if you really don't care where you're going, how you get there doesn't make much difference. And um, for some of the decisions that we make in life, that may be a pretty good philosophy. Um, we do tend to make mountains out of molehills and think that every decision is super important. On the other hand, there are some decisions that are really significant, um, life-changing decisions. Will I get married? Should I take this job? Will we live here or there? Probably the most significant decisions that we make are really about what we will continue to do over and over again. Um, the things that we will follow or not follow on a day-to-day -day basis. In the end, it is this capacity to decide that really defines who we are. Someone once said, excuse the sexist language, it is the refusal of God to conduct the affairs of men that creates the glory of man. And it is our decisions, moment by moment, that determine whether God is going to be glorified in our lives. Victor Frankl uh, wrote a good deal about the German prison camp in which he was incarcerated during World War II and the kind of persons that people became under those circumstances. And he says the type of person that a prisoner became was not just the result of those horrible circumstances, but also the result of an inner decision. So I want us to think this morning about decision-making uh, and the process that we sometimes refer to as the process of discernment. How do I begin to understand God's will for my life and for our community? How do I begin to discern the will of one who is the way, the truth, the life? And maybe one of the things that we can be, do that would be helpful here is to recognize some of the things that get in the way, some of the things that cloud our understanding. I suppose there are any number of those. Maybe at the top of the list is fear. You know, the Bible says that God is love. And the Bible insists that perfect love can cast out fear. But you know as well as I do that the opposite is also true, right? I mean, fear can cast out love. In fact, maybe one of the number one reasons why our prayers don't resemble the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember he prayed, not my will but yours be done, maybe one of the reasons that our prayers don't resemble that more often is that we are afraid 
of what God might ask us to do or what God might ask us to give up. One of the fears that gets in our way is just the fear of making a mistake. Rosemary Doherty um, used to serve on the, uh, on the staff at the Shalem Institute where I, I did some sabbatical work back in, um, in um, Washington, D.C. And she writes a lot about this whole process of discernment. Um, she talks about a time where she had a sense that one of the staff members there was getting ready to leave, to resign from the program. And this person apparently was a real asset, would have been very, very difficult to replace. And Rosemary writes this. She says, I am great at procrastinating, especially when a decision feels weighty and I am afraid that I will make a mistake. A nervous voice inside of me begins to chatter. Oh, don't start thinking about that now. There's plenty of time. Wait a minute. Maybe there won't be any need for a decision. If there is, you can get to, to work on it in a hurry when you know for sure that you have to decide. Rosemary says, I like that rationale. It gives me a good excuse to do what I want to do anyway. Avoid the hard decision. So she says, I kept putting, uh, thinking about that new staff person even when I knew I really did need somebody. When I finally realized what was happening, she says, and when I was able to invite God into that scenario, what I sensed deep inside was something very different from all that I heard in that surface chatting. If what I sensed had words, it would be something like this. Rosemary, I am with you in this. You have what it takes to make this decision. Gather the information you need. Let it sit in your heart for a while and then do what you can do. Don't hold back in fear. Does it really matter if you make a mistake? What is a mistake anyway? I am with you no matter what. Grounded in that awareness, she said she was able to get on with the process of looking for someone else. And in all of this, she had the tremendous sense that God cared about the program, that God cared about the person who was getting ready to leave, that God cared about her. Perfect love can cast out fear. A second thing that gets in the way of our discerning God's will is that it does necessitate my giving up my preconceived ideas, well-conceived as those may be. I had a little inkling of this a number of years ago uh, when uh, I was on sabbatical and our family was traveling together in Italy. So we arrived in Italy first day uh, still very much under the influence of jet lag, we were staying in Sorrento. And I had this wonderful idea that it would be really good to get up the very first day and go on a early, early in the morning, and go on a mandatory hike. My family would call it a march <laughs> to the bus station in Sorrento. I heard about this thrilling public bus ride right down the Amalfi Coast, and it was thrilling, breathtaking. 
Well, we got about two-thirds of the way uh, down that, and you had to change buses in Amalfi. And uh, it was at that point that Kathy um, suggested to me that we, we might want to go back early. Uh, the kids were tired. It was hot. We were all a little bus sick from this winding thing. We might want to go back early. Well, I had bought tickets all the way to the end. <laughs> round trip, round trip. I only sulked a little bit, I swear, only a little bit. <laughs> the very next day, I suggested that we get up very early and go on an obligatory hike. This time to the train station, right next to the bus station, so that we could go and tour the ruins at Pompeii. And then in the afternoon, we would go and we would hike Mount Vesuvius. It was a wonderful itinerary. Um, and after several hours of touring the ruins of Pompeii with young daughters in the 95-degree heat, Kathy suggested to me that maybe we could just move, uh, view Mount Vesuvius in the distance and not really hike it. Well, that was the second day in a row, not my itinerary. I only sulked a little bit more that day, just a little bit. It was somewhere not too long after that that Kathy suggested to me, ever so gently, <laughs> that if I wanted to keep this itinerary going the way it was, that I might be doing it alone. <laughs> I have looked back on that occasion many times. And I have come to realize how often I walk into, for example, a meeting here at church or in the community or at Presbytery with some preconceived ideas of how it should go. Some of you have been with me in meetings. You know this. And that's not altogether bad. Discernment, however, means not just trusting God enough to name my preferences but also to go on to ask, God, do I need to relinquish anything in order to participate in your prayer for us? If it is always my way or the highway, there is very little room for anyone else's way, including the way. <laughs> A third thing that sometimes gets in the way, I think, is we expect somebody else to make our decisions for us. So Alice does say to the cat, would you tell me which way I am to walk from here? In the lesson that Orletta read to us from Deuteronomy, which is all about God's will, it is, it's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us? No. The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. So one of the greatest gifts that we can give someone else is to help them discern what is God's will in their lives. But that is so difficult for those of us who always want to solve everything. We want to give advice, even when it is not asked for. We want to tell them about our related problems and dilemmas, which may be very similar, 
but are not theirs. So Douglas Stevers once wrote, to listen another soul into a condition of disclosure and discovery may be almost the greatest service that any human being ever performed for another. But again, to trust that God's word for us is closer than we think. And nobody else, be it a therapist or a minister or a spouse or a father or a mother, nobody can do that discerning for us. Or one last thing that sometimes gets in the way is just the cultural expectations that are laid upon us. Some of those come from our own families. I remember hearing John Claypool, my favorite Episcopalian, uh, talk about how when he was growing up, his grandfather was a wonderful physician. And from early on, it was like the family wanted to lay that mantle on his shoulders. In fact, at family gatherings, they would refer to him as the little doctor. It wasn't until midway through college that John began to realize that medicine was not his thing. He preferred philosophy and the whole world of ideas. Words were his chosen tool. And he talked about how heartbreaking that was uh, to reveal to his family. I think Kathy's father uh, was always good at fixing things. Whenever, his, whenever he would come to visit us, we always had a list of things that he was to tinker with. But when they were growing up, uh, Kathy's father uh, always took Kathy's brother Jim along with him to fix things. Well, it turns out Jim has about as much aptitude for fixing things as I do, which is very high, as some of you know. And so, you know, I think now about if Kathy's father had taken her and showed her how many more things she would be able to fix around the house <laughs> than she is already able to fix. Can a woman be the one who fixes things around the house? Can a black man have a happy marriage with a white woman? Can a gay person be in leadership in the church? Can a black person be president? Can a woman? Maybe we'll find out. Cultural expectations still play an enormous role in our ability to ascertain God's will, along with fear and an unwillingness to renegotiate our preconceived ideas or expecting somebody else to do our decision-making for us. All of these can and they do get in the way. So how do we get beyond these obstacles and really listen for that word that is nearer than we think, even in our own hearts? Well, back in the 1960s, when everything important happened, a United Methodist by the name of Albert Outler came up with something he called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Um, what it was was kind of a summation of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist churches, John Wesley's theology. All of our recovering Methodists can tell you about <laughs> this. Um, Wesley never actually used these words, but this is sort of a sum summation of his thoughts. Four crucial considerations when you are trying to discern God's will. Here they are. Scripture, reason, 
the history of the church and your own experience. And what I find so useful of that model is that it causes us to avoid thinking that any one of them alone is a sufficient answer. So, four questions. Is what I am thinking about or desiring to do in line with what the scripture says? And since I know that many of you have family and friends who love to just cherry pick one particular scripture version out of its historical and literal context and say, this is the word of God for all time on this subject. Let me also say, we have to ask, what does the whole scripture say about this? For example, it is not sufficient to quote an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and therefore use that as a justification for violence or war or capital punishment without also quoting Jesus about turning the other cheek. It is not sufficient to quote the first chapter of Genesis and use it as a reason to teach creationism in public schools without also quoting the second chapter of Genesis, which has a completely different order of creation. Fundamentalists are no different than the rest of us, said William Sloan Coffin. They use the Bible as the drunk uses a lamppost for support, not illumination. And for heaven's sake, let's be done with the hypocrisy of claiming I am a Bible literalist. When the truth is, everyone is a selective literalist, especially those who swear by these anti-homosexual laws in the book of Leviticus and then go home on Sunday afternoon and grill the ribs on, on the grill and watch Monday night football somehow forgetting that Leviticus also says it is an abomination not only to eat pork, but to touch a pigskin. <laughs> is what I am thinking or professing in line with the whole of Scripture is the question. Secondly, does this make sense in the light of reason? Pascal was certainly right. Uh, the heart has its reasons that reason knows not of. The person who is guided only by reason never falls in love, never knows the joy of giving extravagantly, never does anything heroic at the risk of his or her own life. So reason has its limits. But the scripture does tell us to not only be gentle as doves, but wise as serpents. Jesus came to save us from our sins, not our minds. So faith is not, as some would believe, a substitute for thinking. On the contrary, it's what makes good thinking possible. It is not an accident that the scientific method grew up in Western society so influenced by Judeo-Christian thought. So always asking, what does reason tell me about this? Thirdly, is it consistent with what the church has taught throughout history? And by that I mean not only what did the church say, but how did the church make decisions about an issue? For example, in the early church, one of the early di dilemmas was whether Gentiles should be welcomed 
into the church. And if they were, did they have to follow Jewish dietary laws? Simon Peter was one of those who clearly wrestled with that issue. The Hebrew scriptures are pretty clear that the Jewish dietary laws should stand. But one night, Simon Peter had a dream where God was sending him to a Roman centurion named Cornelius, a Gentile. Furthermore, the dream revealed to him all of these different animals, contrary to kosher laws, and told him to go and kill and eat. And Simon Peter went and baptized Cornelius and then struggled with Jewish dietary laws. It is a powerful example about how we bring the wisdom of tradition, a priceless gift, along to bear with our experience in decision-making, which leads me to the final of word in Wesley's model. Does it resonate as being true in my own experience and in the experience of other Christians? Now, experience, of course, is subjective, right? And there are false voices out there and in here that can color our discernment process. You know, they say you are what you were when. Crosby, Stills, and Nash's song, Love the One You're With, sounded very different to me in college than it did when we took our two daughters to hear them in concert. Our experiences are subjective. Still, our own observations and those of others around us are not to be taken lightly, but to be used along with these other three parts of discerning God's will. One way to do that is to find somebody who you really trust. Could be a mentor, could be a spiritual companion, someone who you can be honest with and disclose not only what you are certain about, but what you are doubting about, and let them help you examine your own motives. One of the ways is to distinguish, to distinguish God's voice is to listen for repeated messages in your life. I read not long ago about a woman named Jackie. She had always had a dream from the time she went to college. She wanted to get married and have children. That was her biggest dream. She said whenever she heard the word mission, she knew that was not for her. In fact, she was absolutely scared of it. But then she started hearing that word more and more in college chapel services and in the coffee house. Eventually, as Jackie started thinking about what she wanted to do after graduation, the word mission kept coming up, this time without some of the fear that it had raised before. So towards the end of her junior year, a good friend encouraged her to apply for mission work with an organization called Youth with a mission. And so shortly after graduation, this is exactly what she did. Now, Jackie would tell you that she had no idea exactly when her heart changed, but what she does know is that she started paying attention to those repeated messages, and those took root, and they led to a life-changing decision. Which leads me to one final thought. In the end, discernment is not so much one particular act. It is a habit. It is the process of 
practicing paying attention. So again, Rosemary Doherty says, there is a place deep inside of me where I am myself with God. I need to return to that place again and again to sense what is called for at any given moment. Eventually, it won't be a matter of returning there. I will live there. And then the process will not be so difficult. So let me conclude this morning with a prayer that I first heard way back when I was in seminary, but has come back to me, uh, especially in the last few months. Thomas Merton uh, was a, um, a wonderful guru, a Trappist monk, and very wise in matters of spirituality. And this is his prayer. My Lord, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me, I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone.